This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG 13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Electric acid. And I think the bit that made me laugh the most was when they finally got their spot and they were in their house, that little shanty on the side of the river. It's hopeful. They're finally here and they, they're building their future and they start falling through the floors and the floor is literally falling out. It's like, oh, whatever. Welcome to this episode of Generation Film, where two guys from the 20th century select a classic movie to show a panel of young film lovers and see if it still plays to today's generation. I'm Mark Netter. I'm a filmmaker and instructor at the Los Angeles Film School and CEO of Electrocast Media. I'm David Tausick. I was a director and writer for 20 years. Hi, I'm Guy Lewis. I'm a student at Los Angeles Film School and I love movies. Hi, I'm Grace Chapman. I'm also a student at the Los Angeles Film School and I am a cinephile. Hi, I'm Jake Flowers. I am a business student at the Los Angeles Film School. I am also a cinephile and a hopefully future costumer. Well, this past week, the five of us watched Charlie Chaplin's 1936 classic, Modern Times. This movie was a huge hit when it was released, and it is currently number 47 on the IMDb list of top-rated movies. It consistently makes the top 100 list of greatest films and greatest comedies of all time as voted on by both critics and filmmakers alike. Charlie Chaplin was considered a genius because he not only wrote and directed and starred in his own movies, he even wrote the scores for them as well. And this movie, Modern Times, was his farewell to his little tramp character, which he had played for 20 years. It was also his farewell to silent films, as there's no spoken dialogue. There is a synchronized soundtrack with sound effects, music, and one nonsense song sung by Chaplin, which is actually the first time the world had ever heard Chaplin's voice. David, I know you are a huge Chaplin expert. Does what I say ring true to you? And can you tell us anything more about Charlie? Yes, what you said rings true. He was also a producer, by the way, in addition to writer, star, director, and composer of all the music. He was the biggest thing around for a very, very long time. And if you want to see how highly regarded he was by Hollywood, You could check out on wherever you want, YouTube or whatever, the ovation he got when he was finally allowed to come back to the United States and get an honorary Oscar. It's essentially 10 minutes of applause followed by a two-minute speech. Born in 1889, by the time he was one, his father had left home and his mother was committed to an asylum. And Chaplin ended up for a time working in a workhouse from about the age of five. This was in uh, London, right? In Victorian era London. London. Yes, he was born in London. And he had a Dickensian childhood. I think he had one year of formal education. When his mother went to the asylum, he found himself scrounging around for food and trying to find something to do at the age of nine through about 14. Eventually, his half-brother, Sidney, came and Sidney got into vaudeville and helped his little brother, Charlie, get into vaudeville too. Charlie did a drunk act that people really liked. It caught on, and he started touring with Fred Carno's uh, traveling troupe. Carno, by the way, didn't want to hire Charlie. He said he's small, pathetic, shy, and uh, scruffy. But in 1914, Max Sennett hired him to work for Keystone Studios. They made a film a week. These were all like, what, 10, 20-minute films? Yeah, Chaplin made about 80 films in his career, but the first 70... All but two of them are short films, most of them about 25 minutes long. They call them two-reelers. 
because there's literally two reels of film. <laughs> so he started making these two reelers, one every week. Often there was no script. They'd just go to a place and they'd say, well, uh, here's a bakery. Here's some pies. Why don't you throw them in each other's faces? Great. Here's some kids doing an auto race. Why don't you thumb your nose at them and kick women in the butt? And he played it first. A very cruel character. I mean, he's really snide. I got a question. Was the two-reeler format standard across all the movies that were made in that era? Were they doing full-length features at that time? There were a lot more short films made than features, but people were making features. Generally, when people went to the movies, they'd either look in a Nickelodeon, they'd like put a nickel in, and they'd turn a crank and they'd see the movie all by themselves, or... They could go into a theater that would just show shorts continuously. You just walk in whenever you want, get your popcorn or whatever, and watch shorts until you're ready to leave. With a piano player usually, right? Yes. So these films are truly silent. There was no score or anything. And so it was up to each theater to just hire their own pianist or organist or whatever they could get. Who knows? They might get a harmonica player. The filmmakers never knew what kind of music was going to go with their film. Sometimes the people playing the music had never seen the film before, and they were literally just trying to make up something to go along with the film while they were watching it. Chaplin's films were more popular, so they'd play a long time, and often piano players would have learned the films, and they'd actually play stuff on cue that probably helped films get across. In a certain point in the silence, the studio would send a score out, like sheet music, right, for certain movies? Later on, that happened. I don't think Max Sennett bothered with that. He was really churning them out. So uh, Chaplin made 35 films in his first year, and he got paid $150 per film, I believe. Uh, he was just trying to figure his character out. So his first film, he was very unhappy with. He played a villain. So he decided to make up his own character, and he went into the costume room, and he said, I want to find all these contradictions, a really tight jacket, but really baggy pants and a really small hat, but really big shoes. He put this little mustache on so that you could see his facial expressions, but he'd look older because Max Sennett was saying, you're too young really to be a movie star and I don't think you're going to get anywhere. So for the first few years of his career, he was always trying to appear older than he was. And then later in his career, he ended up having to try to appear younger than he was. So his mustache was fake? Oh, it was grease paint. He just painted grease paint on, yeah. Totally fake. Even by the time you get to his features in modern times, was it still grease paint? In modern times, he might have pasted on a fake mustache, but he never wore that mustache in his private life. It was only for the movies. And he was blonde, but he wore a black wig. He didn't have black hair. Like all silent actors, he lightened up his face with a little white pancake, and then he would darken his eyes because sometimes the quality of the screenings was bad, so you couldn't see people's faces while well. he wanted to make sure you saw every expression. So by the end of the Keystone 35 films he made, he started becoming a sensation. He was just the funniest of all the funny men. You know, Buster Keaton and Harold Lloyd hadn't even come around yet, and Chaplin was the king of comedy. He asked, was it Keystone you said? He asked them for $1,000 a week, and they said, hell no. And then he went, where, where did you say? Uh, he went there and then they offered him even more than what he, he wanted. Yes, Max Sennett made a big mistake, but he was kind of cheap. So SNA was giving him a, you know $1,250, a pretty unheard of salary for a guy making short films, but they were making a fortune off him. Mm -hmm. And the great thing about silent films is they could play all over the world. Made no difference. In Spain, they called him Carlos. In France, they called him Charlot. In Italy, he was Charlito. Everyone thought he was like one of them. Nobody really thought about what nationality he was. He had no nationality. Right. In fact, when sound came in in 1927, Chaplin was like, why would I want to limit my audience to just English speakers? Yes. So at SNA, he made better films. He directed all the films he made there. And he decided to stop just doing uh, slapstick comedy, which is all they did at Keystone, and start introducing some pathos to the film. So he wrote some scripts. The Tramp was one where he actually has a sad ending. I think it's considered to be the first comedy that has an unhappy, sad ending. Hmm. That got critics to pay more attention to him as well as audiences. So the next year, Mutual offered him a contract. He was to make 12 films in 12 months, 
and get paid $670,000 for the year. A crazy sum of money in 1916 or 17 when this happened. The mutual shorts that he made are all two-reelers. They're the funniest two-reelers he ever made and, and probably the best. But from there, he went on to First National, who paid him a million dollars. And there, he really had freedom. He could take as long as he wanted. He didn't have to make a film a month. He could take four months, five months. And he drove them crazy by actually doing that because uh, they were actually paying him by the year. And he took more than a year. He promised he would make eight films in a year, but it took him almost two years. And they still had to keep paying him. But they couldn't really complain because they were making so much money. The two best films he made for First National are probably Shoulder Arms and The Kid. It's a story with a lot of sadness, but also a lot of comedy in it. So it's really a mixture of a drama and a comedy. He wanted out of the First National contract because even though he had total control, they still interfered. They interfered with the marketing, with the distribution. They tried to hurry him up. He was annoyed by all that. So he started a company called United Artists. He got together with Mary Pickford, Douglas Fairbanks, who were married, and D.W. Griffith. And the four of them formed the company just for artists to make films exactly the way they wanted to make them. It took him a while to make his first film, but he made a film called The Gold Rush, which was the most popular film he ever made. It grossed $5 million, unheard of. It's really the pure tramp. It's the purest expression of that character. Well, he's a but prospector, then, right? He goes up to Alaska and he has terrible misadventures. and Everything goes wrong. He's as poor as can be. He thinks he's going to strike it rich. And it's a very, very funny film. And there's also some really, really sad scenes. Then he made The Circus. He made City Lights. Definitely considered one of his best films. Also a film with a lot of pathos. It's about him as a homeless person who decides to help this blind flower girl. So... Now we get to modern times, which is the film we're discussing today. Does one of you want to kind of summarize the movie a little bit? Yeah. I'll, I'll, okay. You want to go, guy? Grace. <laughs> okay. You want to go? No, no, Jake, you go for it. Yeah. Okay. Like, yeah. You volunteered. You go for it. So the movie is set to the backdrop of the Great Depression, a tale of this working or not so much working man who becomes unemployed frequently. He's kind of kooky. And it's a classic Charlie Chaplin style comedy with lots of things going wrong. Intertwined is like an old timey love story with a gal who's been orphaned and her father who's unemployed as well. And we just follow these two and their crazy ups and downs. And you'll have to watch to see what happens. at the <laughs> <laughs> I think we've covered a lot of Chaplin. We've covered a bit about the movie. So here's my first question. You know, this is a movie that is now, if I got my numbers right, 86 years old. Released in 36, was probably made in 35. Uh, you know, he makes City Lights in 1931. And the talkies had come in in 1927. And nobody was making silent films anymore, even when he made City Lights. Right. But he just couldn't imagine the Tramp character talking. So he made a silent film and... People accepted it, but then he didn't know what to do next. He felt he couldn't make another silent film. It was just over. He had barely squeaked in with City Lights. And he traveled for five years all around the world. He traveled to China. He had no idea where his career was going to go. And then he met Paulette Goddard and fell in love with her. And he wanted to write a film for her. He said, it's got to be a talkie, but I really want to do The Tramp. I don't really want to come up with another character. He wrote a version of the script in which he speaks, but he decided it wouldn't work. So all the sound we hear from people talking comes from machines. We have the radio. We hear the boss talking over this big video screen where he's like gigantic and yells at the employees, get going. This film is about mankind lost in a big machine. It's obviously the depression, but I was like, is this some futuristic depression? Because there's like video screens. So I thought that was pretty interesting. Thoughts, yeah. It harkens back to like maybe Metropolis or something like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I got the Metropolis feel of it. Yeah, that it's was like up. one of my first thoughts was Metropolis because the first scenes of the sheep and then the people being herded as well. I was like, that reminds me of Metropolis. <laughs> Actually, Grace, why don't you just talk about how the movie opens because it's so extraordinary. Metropolis, by yeah, the way, I... 1927, uh, oh. nine years earlier. 
and a full silent movie. But what was it, the opening? You just mentioned the sheep. What was that all about? Yeah, the first scene is these sheep just being herded. You can't tell where they're going. It's just a bunch of sheep running against each other. And then the very next scene is people coming up the stairs of a subway. It's obviously telling you what the film is about, like the first scene. And I just really love that he got the message out there immediately. I think also it's important to mention the black sheep that's shown. I think that's Charlie Chaplin's character in mm-hmm. this story. I didn't even notice. Yeah, that. and the way that he's like juxtaposed with everything and everyone being much bigger than him in the film. Yeah, he's short. Yeah, he's, he's so small. I never realized he was such a small man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, so, you know, the the movie starts and he's in the factory and then eventually he gets uh, repetitive work syndrome and he, yeah. and there's a number of funny things. Which I are, really but, loved the, sorry to interrupt, but I just have to say this. I loved when he's on the machine and he's just hitting those screws like, so fast and like he must have practiced forever. The one, yeah. And it also reminded me of I Love Lucy in the yeah. chocolate factory scene. We all said. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, I love that show. So I was like, and I never realized how inspired she must be by Charlie Chaplin, her facial expressions, everything. I think so many movies that oh, yeah. were Definitely. inspired by the Definitely. And so many classic TV shows just took stuff right out of this movie. Yeah. He trips over the ottoman when he walks into the house, just like Dick Van Dyke does at the beginning of his show. There's Lucy, as you said, with the conveyor belt. And Woody Allen mercilessly copies Chaplin mm-hmm. in his early films. So I want to know from our young panelists here. What was your feeling when you were watching the movie? You know, were you following what was going on? Were you relating to it? Were you bored? Did you want to know what happened next? Were you empathizing with Charlie or any of the other characters? Guy, why don't you start? When we first started watching the movie with the sheet coming through then immediately going to the people going to the grind, it made me think about how during COVID, it was kind of like that reverse, you know, um, it was like, you know, people were, weren't rushing off to a job. They were like at home. And then like a lot of people complain about that, but then the reverse, you know, a lot of people would complain about that too. Also, Chaplin goes to jail, like what, seven times in this movie? <laughs> well, we don't always see him in jail, but at least mm-hmm. maybe three or four times he's in jail. Something yeah. Like that. The cops are always on him. It kind of like speaking to like, you can't hold a job. It's easy for you to go to jail. Almost almost like the the idea that unemployment is a crime. (laughs) Right. Yeah. Right. So like, you know, if you don't have any opportunity to survive and you have to make these choices, some of these choices are to break the law. Right. And then, but when he goes to jail though, it's not like a bad experience. Well, he he did there and it's enduring it. Yeah. Yeah. Tree meal in here. (laughs) <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. He was like eating good. And he's like, can I stay a little while longer? Yeah. Can I stay a bit longer? <laughs> I, did, I just thought about the American prison system and how it you know, recycles criminals. So this kind of goes to the idea that there's things in this movie that haven't really dated. Nope. Right. All relatable. Yeah. The message, the themes. Grace, what about you? What was your reaction when you were watching it? I really liked the message. I knew right away that I would resonate with like being a cog in the machine and whatnot. And I, I think it's really poignant even today. It's just the comedy. I don't know. It's not my thing. I was, how do I put this? <laughs> Some of the points were funny. Like I like a lot of the, what are they called? The dialogue cards? Uh, yeah, um, uh, thought, inner titles. Yeah. I thought those were witty. It's just the physical comedy for me was not doing it (laughs) you didn't like the you didn't like the feeding machine (laughs) i liked the feeding machine that was kind of the only gag i kind of liked but even that i thought went on a little bit too long yeah (laughs) and you know what we've seen it all that makes a lot of We've seen this over and over and i think to watch it when it first came out would have been like outrageously hilarious yeah not to say it wasn't funny i was definitely lovable and funny but Mm -hmm. i could appreciate it there were moments where it was like okay wrap it up in retrospect, this could almost seem slow, but I think to people at the time, it must have seemed unbelievably fast-paced. Yeah, yeah. definitely. They were crying right. at every turn. I was laughing when he was like turning at the corners and he would like sit. Like, I'm like, that's so cartoonish. Yeah. They stole that from him. Oh, yeah. 
they shot the action scenes, I believe, at 18 frames a second, projecting them at 24, 18 frames with silent speed. So it speeds up, it feels faster, like the work stuff was probably mm -hmm. faster than he was actually doing it. The other thing that I want to say is it's one thing that we're not watching it in 1936 when right. in 1936 in a big audience where you had 500 people in a theater or even 200 or even today, if you go to a Chaplin movie that's being projected, you're going to get more laughs out of the theater. And sometimes we find with these movies, they leave room for the audience to laugh. Mm -hmm. Right. But if you're at home alone, you know, maybe your chuckle is not going to last as long as, you yeah. know, 100 people laughing in a theater. The community efforts. <laughs> okay. So, Grace, I really appreciate what you're saying. And then part of what we're really interested in talking about in Generation Film is you know, differences in the times and, you know, and if films fold up in different ways. But Jake, what was your feeling when you were watching it? I think the first thing it resonated with was the message about feeling like a cog in the machine. And I think each scene has its own, like, for lack of a better term, vibe or feeling. Mm -hmm. And when he's in the workplace, it's like this dread feeling. And then when he's out in the world, it's exciting, but also dreadful. And there's drama at every turn. Something bad is happening. And the part that the like romantic in me latched onto was where he's with his female counterpart and they're longing to just have a space together and how unattainable that is. Mm -hmm. And I think that was super relatable. It's like, <laughs> that's all we want. And we also feel maybe like a bit overworked or like there's no means to an end there. And so... It just made his character so easy to love because you can see yourself in him. Mm. You know what I mean? And I think the bit that made me laugh the most was when they finally got their spot and they were in their house, that little shanty on the side of River, and they start falling through the floors and you're just like, it's, it's hopeful almost because you're like, they're finally here and they, they're building their future. In, the in, in a squat, right? In a yeah. Squat. They didn't buy this place. They just happened upon it and the floor is literally falling out from the roof that making it's like oh, whatever at this point yeah, and then he has his fantasy sequence of what his home will be like right like before that and then you see the actual home with the cow that was so interesting i know <laughs> just it was like a dream did he just kick it and it started like yeah. cooking? <laughs> i read that that was because what's the agency that makes you cut things out of your movies? What am I oh, to it was the Hollywood Production Code. Yeah, they were like, we don't want to see the udders. That's disgusting. So he that was his roundabout way of fixing that problem. Oh, wow. <laughs> How interesting. So, Grace, there's a scene where someone comes into the factory to demonstrate a machine that'll feed a worker while they're working so they don't have to stop working. Eliminating their lunch hour. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Every employer's dream. The head break. Yeah. <laughs> I thought that concept was very funny and the fact that it even fit over the line so they didn't have to leave the factory line. I thought that was pretty brilliant. But again, I thought it just went on too long. Like they, yeah. they didn't have to do the corn bit for so long. But I, I understand. I understand. <laughs> I, would laugh. I agree with Mark. See it in a, in a movie theater with 200 Chaplin fans. Oh, yeah. And you might not feel it's too long. Yeah, they would. You all oh. feel different. Oh, yeah. <laughs> right. I was waiting for that typewriter ding. That you always see in cartoons when they do the corn. Oh, I loved the sound though. During the corn, it sounded like some crazy, like uh, David Lynchian, yeah. like Twin Peaks something. Yeah, totally. There's something bizarre. Oh, yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Life is hard, but finding a really great podcast makes the days go by so much easier. Hi, my name is Blue Toulousma. I'm a writer, an emotional intelligence coach, and the host of Humanize with Blue Toulousma, a podcast where we believe that when you humanize everyone in the room, a great conversation is almost guaranteed. Join us every week here on ElectroCast as me and my guest co-hosts unpack big topics and interview even bigger personalities with a sense of humor and a dash of mischief. If you're looking for a new best friend in your head, we've got you covered. ElectroCast. 
So, Guy, what do you think was the funniest scene for you in the movie? Well, the corn scene, I think I laughed out loud. I was going to also say the cocaine scene or the nose powder. Yeah. <laughs> they, they don't say cocaine because you yeah. say that at the time, but they say what nose you- candy, right? Nose <laughs> powder. Nose powders. <laughs> when was that scene? What, what happened during that scene? Do you want to do the setup, uh, Jake? So he's in jail for the first time next to this big brutish guy. And they're at the mess hall eating their slop. And these inspectors come looking for someone who's smuggled drugs into the jail. And this cheeky guy next to him, who's the... Even smaller than Charlie Yeah, <laughs> who's this grimy culprit who has the nose powder, <laughs> kind of puts it in the salt shaker and pushes it over to Chaplin's side and gets the heck out of there. So Chaplin starts sprinkling it on his food and obviously getting high from the nose powder. <laughs> and then he's acting all buzzy and crazy and what a cartoonish person on nose. He keeps going for more of it. He's like, this is good. Yeah, and then his cellmate is kind of like, what the hell's wrong with this guy? And he starts getting braver and taking the cellmate bread. uh, bread And he like flicks food at his face. (laughs) One thing I noticed, Chaplin prances around a lot, right? And uh, every other male in the film is trying to be a tough female. Mm -hmm. Right, they're all, they all have their chests out and they're, they're all pushing each other around. What was that about? Why was that man shirtless? He just had to be hot. I don't oh, know. Okay. That's part of the fun of it is Chaplin is not worried at all about appearing masculine mm-hmm. family. And some of the humor comes from that, but also just a lot of the character. This film really tries to strike at all these systems of dominance and control. He's a real humanist. And I think that's really the theme of the film. He just wants to live his life, have some food, have a, a girlfriend. Mm-hmm. It's unusual that he ends up with a girlfriend at the end of this movie because almost every Chaplin film ends up with him alone. There are people that are so poor, they actually can't really afford to have a partner. Love is not always enough. No. Interesting. Okay, I'm going to say, from my point of view, one of my favorite scenes of the movie, because I love politics, so I love things that are kind of political, There's a scene where Charlie's been released from jail and he's out on the street and he's walking along and a truck comes by with a construction flag on it (laughs) and it falls off, which is probably a red flag to make sure that you don't bump into what the truck is hauling. And Charlie picks up the flag and he's running after the truck, trying to tell them that they've dropped the flag. He's being a good guy. And a whole protest appears behind him. People protesting for freedom and liberty. You know, no, union people protesting the strike right? Uh, for, oh, right. for unions and for socialism. Well, yeah, I don't think the word socialism appeared in it, but they were definitely like socialists. He's arrested because they think he's a communist. When you Waving a red flag was a way of showing that you were a communist. But what happens so quickly is like he's waving the flag. He's in front of them. So it looks like he's leading them. And yeah. the cops come in from all sides on horseback and start busting head on everybody. And of course, he gets arrested as the ringleader and thrown into prison. Yeah. I think that's also a big testament to what was happening in the world at the time. In the mid to late 1930s, there was a giant uprising of civil rights activism. And it was like at a peak and labor strikes were happening around the country. And speaking of the socio-political atmosphere at the time, fascist movements were seizing power and leading nations all over the world. And so the people were trying to regain that sense of the old way of America and by the people and for the people. And so organizing was really powerful back then. And I think Chaplin always shows these socio-political atmospheres in his movies purposefully. They were still in the they were still in the depression. The depression went off for like three more years. Earlier you were talking about how much he made off of these movies and stuff. And I and I did a little research and they the income for the average American was 1,780 bucks for a whole year for the year. Right. The cost of loaf for bread was nine cents. Mm. Rent was around 26 bucks. And the cost of a movie ticket was anywhere from like 13 cents to a quarter. So it was kind of strange to see how basically watching Jay-Z or I don't know, Brad Pitt make all this money and then make a movie about how the poor or marginalized but then that's where his audience was too right mm-hmm. but i don't think he was pandering to that audience though i think he was no. i think it was real genuine in yeah. the way that 
that he conveyed these ideas and thoughts. Very genuine. It's really short. It's like the Marx Brothers. He literally brings rich people in and then like kicks them and <laughs> makes sure they fall in, into the mud face down. I mean, he really thumbs his nose. And it's not, it's not the wealth that upsets him. It's the snobbery, right. The, right, the, the superior attitude and uh, the way that the rich were exploiting the poor. I think it goes back to, David, where you were giving us the history lesson on Chaplin at the beginning. This guy came from nothing and came from yeah. desperate circumstances. And it sounds like he never forgot that, even right. you know, as he made these, these amazing movies. But I'm so glad that Jake brought up that question about fascism uh, growing in the world, because at the time, as you say, Hitler, Mussolini, and Franco were gaining power. These fascists in Europe were taking over. And Chaplin got in trouble for making this film. The FBI started looking at him and wondering if he was a communist. And he said over and over again, I'm not a communist. In my research, I found out that during the time, like so few films were being made about the plight of the poor. Mm. A lot of the media was meant to bring happiness to the people and to help distract from all the horrible things that were happening in the world. And so for him to make a comedy about the plight of the poor was like, oh, shit. It's interesting that we have two movies in a row that both kind of involve the underclass and people that end up squatting in places to live. He's really saying something here. The next film he made after this was The Great Dictator, in which he makes fun of Adolf Hitler. But he started writing it before Hitler invaded Poland. He wrote it in 38. Hitler invaded Poland in 39. That's about the same day they started shooting The Great Dictator. And then the film came out and the U.S. wasn't in the war. So it's a film making fun of Hitler and Mussolini. And at the end, he makes an impassioned plea for world peace. And he got in so much trouble with the FBI for making this film. They wrote in his dossier that he's prematurely anti-fascist. Huh. As though there was a time when it was proper to be fascist, but then it became improper. After Pearl Harbor was okay, but before Pearl Harbor. Right. Was okay. right. Yeah, after Pearl Harbor 1941, you're okay. Um, Grace, you said you had some fun facts about the movie that you've done some research on. The food machine sequence took seven days to film. Wow. I can't imagine. And then the working title before it was Modern Times, they were thinking about calling it The Masses, which would be a good one, I think. But I think Modern Times is a little better. You call it but The Masses and for sure you're going to be considered to be a Marxist. Oh, yeah. <laughs> And then also the roller skating scene um, when he's almost going to fall off the edge there. It was actually a technique where he painted a matte painting on a piece of glass and put it up to the camera. It was like perfectly aligned so you couldn't tell it was a painting and he wasn't actually in any danger on the ledge there. And I just thought that was incredible. Right. It looks like he's going to fall from one floor to another constantly. Mm -hmm. And balcony here. Because he's he put also blindfolded. <laughs> He's blindfolded too. That uh, matte painting uh, technique was used a lot. Harold Lloyd, you know, the famous scene where he's hanging from the clock and it looks like mm -hmm. he's uh, at the top of the tallest building in Los Angeles. And he's actually five feet off the ground. Right. He was not in any danger either. So there was a lot of trickery done in the movies and it, it was like magic. They would never tell the secrets. Yeah. They wanted the audience to think that they were really doing these stunts. So, on the other hand, they did some crazy stunts and oh, yeah. they all got hurt. I mean, Chaplin got hurt many times doing really dangerous stunts. A good film to see is The Rink, where he skates around. It's insane. And, yeah, he's so yeah. good on those skates. Yeah. I've been skating for like five years and I'm nowhere near as good as he had some roller skating practice. Oh, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about this for a sec. So, We've talked a little bit about the film and maybe the pacing and some of the things that might feel a little different, especially if you're watching it on TV or just watching in today's day and age. But I want to talk about what's enduring about Chaplin at the physical, at the performance level, you know, as an actor, because it sounds like everybody kind of related to him in some way. Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering, I mean, I have my own thoughts about this, but I'll start with you, Jake. What is it about Chaplin's performance that you think makes him such an enduring figure? I think it's that he's so different. And this was a time of conservatism. And I think that he was willing to, like a great comic, make himself look crazy or make himself appear unattractive or undesirable for the sake of the comedy. And it's notable. 
Grace, what about you? Were you interested in watching him? Does he hold your interest in the way he moves? And A little bit. A part of me doesn't get it. Like, I don't know why he's got to be waddling around. <laughs> but I, I get his, like, facial expressions because you have to do that when you're a silent film actor. And I think what makes him so iconic is his makeup and just the way he looks and how he's just stuck with this iconic character of the tramp. It's just an iconic look, really. Mm. But he's also very interesting to look at as well, not just because of his makeup, his mustache, his eyebrows, but like you said, he's such a small man and he's so he's so different than all the other leading men. And like when he's like pulling the levers and he's doing that like leg kick, I'm yeah. like, who is this guy? It's kind of fabulous. Yeah, I've, this was the first Charlie Chaplin movie I've really seen, so yeah. I wasn't used to anything about him at all besides his iconic face. And then, Guy, what about you? Did you find yourself drawn to anything in particular about him or the way he acts or moves or performs? Well, um, I've seen like Chaplin clips. Yeah. And like references pretty much everywhere. Seeing Chaplin in this movie was not new to me. At the beginning of film school, we watched City Lights. The thing that gets me about Chaplin is his storytelling ability. Cause there's like no words and you understand how he feels. His portrayal of his characters tells story in a way that you don't really see that because you got the dialogue, you got that. The CGI, you got the action sequences that we use as a device to tell story, but it's very little, very limited special effects, but he tells so much story with less. And also the way he just choreographs a scene is really impressive too. Like when he was like coked out and he was spinning the wrong way yep. and then he walked the wrong way and then that led him to all the other inmates who were trying to escape and then he beat them up. I just thought that was brilliant, just how that was done. Yeah, he used his physicality to push the punch. Yeah. Oh, I think you're so right about doing more with less. When he saw Gone with the Wind, Chaplin just hated the film. That famous crane scene where you crane over 20,000 people, all the battle wounded and all that. He says, I could have gotten the same effect with seven extras. Why do you have to spend $5 million and have 20,000 extras? He's efficient. The audience is with him right? We're looking for how he's reacting to a situation. I think it's less like we're laughing at him <laughs> than we are with him no matter what happens. And yeah, he's kind of like a kid, isn't he? I mean, I don't know. Do, yeah. Do you agree? I thought it was like childlike. very childish humor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's one of the things that's appealing about mm -hmm. him, actually, is that he's a, he's a man child. Yeah. He's yeah. trying to make things work and they don't quite... To me, like one of the most iconic moments, I, I, I thought we all laughed out loud when, when we screened it was, you know, he's in this shack with Paulette Goddard and he goes out in his skivvies in the morning to go for a swim <laughs> and he walks to this little board and he dives in head first <laughs> and it turns out it's one foot deep. Yeah, it's literally a foot. That's, that is the funniest bit in the whole movie. I totally forgot about it, you know. And like the way he just gets up, it just goes right back yeah, inside. I would have broken my neck. There's something about the fact that he's trying, you know. He really is, tr he's an active mm -hmm. character. He is, tr he's not trying huge things. He's not trying to save the world or whatever, but he's, he is trying to get to live his damn life. Yeah. Survive. Yeah. Or do what society and wants. He never, and he never stops moving. He just never stops moving. I think the way he walks and the way that, just, I just think it's so cute. And like you kind of. Yeah, can't... it's cute, which is just weird to me. I don't know. <laughs> I don't want to call a grown man cute. <laughs> <laughs> but it is very, very cute, especially the song at the end. I really love that. So, Grace, do you want to explain what happens there? Yeah. So he is trying to rehearse the song with the love interest, the Gamin, and she writes down the lyrics on his cuff so he won't forget. And then he goes out there, does his little dance. He loses his cuffs and he's like, well, I, what are the words? I can't remember the words. So he looks over and she's like, screw the words. Just just sing, like make something up. So he starts singing in this like gibberish language. I, I'm assuming I couldn't, I don't yeah, know. <laughs> a combination of yeah. French and German. And... and the crowd loves it. And it's kind of like a happily ever after. I don't know. 
<laughs> I think what's remarkable about that scene is that he's tried so many different things. Yeah. And finally, as a performer, he found some mm-hmm. glory. And maybe I'm reading into it too much, but I kind of saw like the the machines were taking everyone's jobs, automation, and that causes a lot of unemployment, but it also causes opportunities to like follow other passions that you may have. God, that sounds like the whole COVID yep. response, right? I don't do that job anymore because now I can go and, you know, be an artist. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. His actual first appearance on stage, I left this out because I didn't want the bio to be too long, but when he was five years old, wow. his mother, who was a singer, developed laryngitis and the theater manager panicked and he pushed Charlie, who was five years old, out onto the stage. And he was sitting there. So the first thing he did is he imitated his mother's laryngitis. And the audience started laughing. And then, you know, he did a whole bit on that. And then finally he sang the song. Wow. Uh, it never occurred to me to, wow. to connect that with that scene. Mm. Wow. Does anyone have anything else they want to add in particular about the movie before we go to our star ratings? I think I'm ready to rate this thing. I think okay. so. All right. So I'm just going to recap for everybody. It's a four-star system. If you are rating anything three and three and a half stars or four stars, that's in the excellent area. A four-star movie should be one that is not only one of the greatest movies you've ever seen, but so personally touched you that you would put it on your 10 best or top 20 list. The lowest you can rate something is a half star, which actually is a movie so bad it's good. So one star is really the mark of shame. And anything that's two or two and a half, it's kind of like a, a good B movie or a bad B movie. So... I'm going to start with Guy on this one. Guy, a few days after seeing Modern Times, how many stars would you grant Mr. Chaplin on this? He's one of the greatest storytellers ever. He does not break into my top 20. I give him three and a half. Chaplin ties with Joe Buck. (laughs) Oh, nice. Just like the last episode when we did Midnight Cowboy, three and a half stars for Modern Times which is a mark of excellence. So that's awesome. Grace, you're next. I'm going to give it a two and a half. I liked the message a lot, but for me, it was a little hard to keep my focus. And I wish the message would have been a little bit more poignant, I guess, throughout the entire film. I felt like he started off really strong with his political message, which I loved. And then it just kind of fizzled out a little. And the comedy was just not there for me. (laughs) Okay, fine, fine, fine. And Jake comes to you. I'm stuck right now between a two and a half and a three because like grades, I feel the comedy wasn't necessarily for me personally. But thinking about the movie objectively, I think it just made such a mark that I have to give it a three. Whether or not I feel like the comedy was the best, I think it's a three. Okay, I'm going to ask another question. I'm going to go back to Guy on this one. Guy, would you recommend this movie to anybody? And would that be everybody or just certain people if you did recommend it? It was made in the in the 1930s. So they sing a song about uh, darkies. Was it, they say darkies? Really? In the... Yeah. So I, I, I've seen the film five times. And it's the first time I noticed it, but it's a bunch of assholes who are like the uh, football band or something. You don't even see them, but they're in the back room and they're singing one of their college songs and the word darky is is in there, which I never noticed until this viewing. I think it's just a reflection of the attitudes of some people at the times. I don't think it reflects the film's attitude at all. Well, well, like, you know, things progress, right? It's not, not that I'm forgiving it. I'm just saying that I just, I wasn't surprised to hear it in that movie but at the same time you know some people may freak out about it i recommend any movie to every person you know good or bad watch a movie but i would have to preface with that it's like hey they you know they say this word and so um you know buckle up all right grace what about you i would recommend it to anybody especially anyone who feels like they're at a dead-end job or something. I feel like the message is very relatable to today. I was really blown away by how modern modern times was and how, like, the more things change, the more they stay the same, really. Jake, what about you? 
I'm thinking about the people that I know who love movies. And if they haven't already seen it, they would probably look at me and be like, why did you recommend this? <laughs> I mean, because it's just not really like a mean movie. But I think there's something that everybody can love about it. Mm. And so, yeah, I would recommend to certain people for sure. I told my grandmother that I watched it and she was really excited because she had seen it in a theater before. Oh my she likes Chaplin and her parents forced her to watch his movies. So she raved about it. So I'd recommend it to her. I will say my father first told me about Modern Times and actually described this scene that you see right here behind me of Chaplin when he gets caught in the machine and the gears early in the movie. And so I was always kind of fascinated by it. But David, what about you? Chaplin fan, Chaplin expert. What is your star rating on Charlie uh, for modern? All right. So first of all, you know, I'm a total cheater on your star system because my, I have a top hundred films that all need to get five stars. I've made it my business over, you know, 63 years of life to see every film that I've ever heard anyone call great. And so I think I've seen a lot of really great films and there are a hundred unparalleled indispensable films out there. There aren't just 10 or 20. That's what I feel. So does this make that list? It's tough because it's sort of in a tie for me with the gold rush city lights. I'm waffling between three and a half and four. I would have easily said four when I first saw it when I was younger. No question about it. I was just bowled over by it. I think for sentimental reasons, I still have to stick to four, but I'm not sure it's my favorite Chaplin film anymore. I used to think it was very deep. And now I'm wondering if some of the statements he was making were things that had been said by other people mm. before. Because when I look at the criticism of the time, uh, the critics don't seem to be wowed by this message of, oh my God, he's talking about how we're all caught in a machine. And that seems to be kind of well-worn territory. So I guess three and a half. Ah, okay. I find it hard not to give this movie a three and a half because it's just so iconic. I do feel that the factory, I mean, look, I think there's funny stuff throughout, but the factory stuff at the beginning is, is what everybody remembers. Mm -hmm. It's the most powerful visually. It's really striking. It's different from any of his other movies. There's nothing like it. it it's, you know, huge sets and this use of like closed circuit television, you know, about, I don't think it existed at that time. It was probably mm -hmm. 20 years before it existed or something. And as I watch it, you know, over time, I find myself feeling very affectionate towards him. I, you know, if you can have a crush on someone who is dead and in the ground, I have kind of an ongoing crush for Paulette Goddard in the oh, movie. Yeah, she's gorgeous. Uh -oh. yeah. I, I think she's not just gorgeous, but I think there's something modern about her. Yeah. And you look at other actresses from that time, they look fake or they look more like old fashioned. She looks like she could be a star today. I think yeah. we, we talked about she kind of looks a little like Vera Farmiga. Yes, she does. So I would give it three and a half. Now, as far as recommending it to people, I think people that like comedy and have been exposed to older films, black and white, even silent films, I definitely would recommend it to them. Right. Um, I kind of raised my boys who are now 22 and 19 on Buster Keaton, Marx Brothers, Charlie Chaplin. And, you know, when I told my son, Jake, who's 22, that we were going to do Modern Times, he was like, whoa, because he really likes the movie. Mm. My wife probably would not be a good choice for this movie. <laughs> so I'd be careful about who I'd recommend things. I mean, for her, a comedy is like Bridesmaids or Devil Wears Prada. I mean, same. I like your wife. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, I love those movies. I love Bridesmaids more. So I think our average with the young audience is three stars. Yeah. And I think wow. that, that's really fair. Uh, We're going to give Charlie Chaplin three stars. It, <laughs> it doesn't seem right. Three stars is an A minus. Okay. Well, I, when you put it that way, I want to change my rating to four. Too late. Too late. Too late. <laughs> I see it's too late. Yeah. I'm just uh, a hater. Sorry. Yeah, Grace is the hater. <laughs> Well, actually, yeah. I want to say something about that. Look, part of this whole show is about exposing people to things that they haven't even right. imagined seeing before. And so I don't know what's going to happen the next time you have an opportunity to see a Charlie Chaplin film. Hopefully you won't run away. But if you... I don't know if I'll watch another one. <laughs> <laughs> I, I've enjoyed silent films in the past, um, but I don't know. I mean, I get why he's so iconic, but 
<laughs> Here's my challenge to you. If you find that City Lights is playing in a theater, not okay. on TV, okay. somewhere, go and see it and tell us what you think afterwards. Okay, I will. So Mark and I had a tough time deciding. We chose this over City Lights because City Lights is sentimental and this seemed to have something to say that might be more relevant today. It's about poverty. It's about class warfare. It's about a lot of things that actually are still going on. Whereas blind women needing operations, you know, and not being able to afford them is less of an issue today. Right. Since you have Medi-Cal, and so you might be able to get some help. Right. <laughs> you know, Obamacare. Right, exactly. So I think there's something really iconic, again, about that factory stuff. And the fact that even if people haven't seen the movie, this image behind me is one that's known worldwide. Mm-hmm. And I yeah, I feel like, like I've definitely seen that before. One thing that we noticed on HBO Max, the aspect ratio, the frame, <laughs> they had reformatted to fit kind of a modern TV. And it's actually more of a square frame, what was originally called the Academy Ratio. And thankfully, David had a Blu-ray of it that we could see the full frame the way that people saw it in the original day. By expanding it to fill your whole modern TV, they cut off the top and the bottom. When VHS came out, do you remember that the Directors Guild sued successfully to have a warning put on every film where they'd changed the aspect ratio to say this has been formatted to fit your screen is not the original version of the film. Remember that? Yeah. Apparently the streaming companies don't have to abide by that anymore. I don't know why. Mm. That's a pretty good lookout. Figure that out. Thank you all for another great episode and a great exploration. Next show, we're going to do Spike Lee's classic from the 1980s, Do the Right Thing. So excited for that one. If you like our show, please tell your friends and please rate and review the show so others can find it as well. Generation Film is an Electrocast production. Our producers are David Tausick and Guy Lewis. Executive producers are Mark Netter and Peter Rafelson. I want to thank our young guests, Guy Lewis, Grace Chapman, Jake Flowers, David Tausick. Great to have you as a partner on the older side of things over here. And please join us for our next show, Do the Right Thing. If you're a working professional wondering what's next for your career, you've come to the right place. Whether you're looking for a promotion, growth, or a potential career transition, look no further. With over 30 years working in a variety of industries, I share my insider knowledge with those ready to get ahead on Career Advancement with Craig Ansell. Tune in to get your strategies for success. Hey, what's happening out there, everybody? This is Lawrence Ross, and I'd like to tell you a little bit about my podcast, The Lawrence Ross Show. Egomaniac. It's a two-hour weekly exploration into my mind. I also do sketches, celebrity impersonations. You're out of order! And I also do song parodies. Not too shabby for a blind guy. Not only are you visually impaired, but you are geographically impaired. New episodes are released every Friday. Check it out on your favorite podcasting platform or listen to it here on Society 13 on Electrocast.